ACT. Time to check in on the games at every Summer Olympics. The gymnastics competition becomes a national obsession. 2012, no exception already, with one American upsetting another to claim a spot in the all-around competition. ESPN's Julie Foudy, our good friend, is joining us from London with more on the Fab Five of Team USA. This has been already such drama, Julie. Good morning. So much drama, and this is not how things were supposed to go, Robin, as you know, and especially with this close-knit American team. They will attempt to rebound and refocus as they have one goal in mind, and that's to bring home the gold. This is what heartbreak looks like. Jordan Weber crumbling the moment she realized that despite her world championship, despite her medal dreams, she would not be competing for the individual all-around title. Instead, she'll have to watch her two teammates, Allie Raisman and Gabby Douglas, go for the Many of us watched that unfold during the Olympics recently in London as uh, Jordan Weber experienced that incredible heartbreak of uh, the end of her dreams. She was, the, she was the heavy favorite to win the women's all-around gymnastics title, bring home the gold, the ultimate success for any gymnast. Um, she had spent years in training for that that very moment, that competition. She had devoted her life to that. And she was supremely confident going in. And, and why wouldn't she be? It was just a year ago that she won the, the World Gymnastics Championship against many of the same people that she would be competing in the Olympics. Uh, she, was, she was confident. This was going to be her year. Everyone thought it. But then there were a couple of missteps and helped out with some of the rules of the Olympics. She didn't even get to compete for the prize. She, she didn't even get to go to the finals. And I suppose we can't even understand how that must have felt, how crushing that defeat must have been, how devastating that loss seemed. I think Peter could. In the story we just read, uh, Peter had an overwhelming sense of loss, heartbreaking agony on the night Jesus was arrested. You see, Peter had spent years training and preparing himself for this role, for this battle he was going to be in. He had devoted his life to following Jesus. He had given it everything. And he too was supremely confident that he would be able to deal with anything that came his way. didn't matter. He was up to it. We know he was because he said so earlier that evening. Jesus has brought his disciples together for this meal, this last supper, and, and teaches them an incredibly powerful lesson when he's there by, by taking on himself the role of washing their feet. 
demonstrating servanthood and humility and what the kingdom of God is about. And, and then later that evening, he's, he's trying to, to prepare them for what's just about to happen. And he, he tells them, look, guys, in, in my time of greatest struggle, you're, you're going you're gonna to fall apart on me. You're going to crumble. I know that you are. He, he, he quotes a prophecy from Zechariah. Look again at Matthew 26, 31. Jesus told his followers, Tonight you'll all stumble in your faith on account of me because it is written in the Scripture, I will kill the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And Jesus then says, But, but after I rise from the dead, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, even though they had been the very closest to Jesus, they had walked with him and talked with him and laughed with him and cried with him and, and eaten with him and worked with him and, and prayed with him and played with him and done everything together, even though they were as prepared as they could have been, Jesus says it's, it's not, it's not going to take care of it. You're going to crash and burn. You're going to stumble and fall flat on your face. But he says, you need to understand, even though you're going to abandon me, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get with you again. In Gal- After this is all over, I'm going to be there for you in Galilee. You see, the, the loss of their courage is not the loss of his love. He says, look, your, your stumble is going to be really, really bad. Your failure is going to be awful. But my love for you is stronger than any stumble, than any failure. And my grace is greater than any any sin. And I'm going to be there for you. Now, I, I suppose there weren't any of those disciples listening to this. I mean, he's just they're just talking. There weren't any of them who were really happy to hear that. Okay, But Peter, leave it to Peter to be the one who just completely contradicts the Son of God. Uh-uh. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that, Lord. All of them, they may. They may crash and burn. They may fall away, but I'm not. If I'm the only one left, even if I have to die with you, I will never betray you. I will never abandon you. I will never deny. Now, I suspect that didn't endear him to the other disciples around. I mean, I'm sure he felt like this was a simple, a simple pledge of loyalty and fidelity. They probably looked on it as arrogance, and I guess it may have been a mixture of both. But then Peter was never the cautious, retiring, you know, timid kind, was he? Never. All through the, the ministry of Jesus, Peter had been out there with and Peter had experienced some things the others hadn't, some miracles. He, he was up on the mount when Jesus was transfigured. And of all of the disciples, all of the 12, he's the only one who walked on the water. He gets a little bit of a bad rap about that sometimes. We're all, oh, Peter, Peter, he fell. He quite ble- Hey, listen, he walked on water. Even if it was only briefly, nobody else did. There was a reason Peter had such confidence going into this. You ever been there? 
thought, man, I can, I'm, I'm good. And I know I've, I've had my unfortunate moments before, but I'm good now. I'm up to any challenge. I can handle it. I mean, you know, you don't think you're perfect. You know, you've got your flaws, but you've, you've experienced some failure. You, you know the taste of defeat. You, you, you've gone through the fire. And like steel, you have become tempered by it. And now you're ready. You're ready for anything. You're ready to handle it. Well, how many of us have grown confident in our ability to face whatever and then taken a tumble? Paul warns us against that. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he says, Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt You can fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Peter couldn't imagine that, though. No. Even when Jesus tells him, look at verse 34 in Matthew 26. I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you even know me. Jesus is very specific. This is what it's going to be. But instead of accepting that, all Peter can do is say, oh, no. No way. It's not going to happen. You're mistaken. Look at verse 35. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. Oh, the courage we have sitting in the locker room before the big game, huh? But then things take a turn that Peter could never have imagined. At first, he is brave, even if he's not very smart. He gets the sword, and he rises to the defense of Jesus. Not very good at it, but he gives it his best shot. And then when Jesus puts a stop to that, he doesn't know what to do. And so he turns, and he does exactly what Jesus had predicted. You see, this isn't a game. Jesus is accused of treason, a capital offense. And if any of the disciples are identified, they can be brought up on the same charges. And Peter, as the night grows darker and the picture grows bleaker, he does exactly what Jesus had said he was going to do. He doesn't do it just once, but he does it again. And again, with swearing just for effect. And at the third time, when he hears the rooster crow, and when he does, his heart sinks like a rock in the ocean. And when it hits the bottom, it just breaks into. He feels the pain of utter, absolute failure, and he goes out and weeps bitterly, the Bible says. Some of us have been there. And we have. We, we should have known better. We have seen other people who are so sure of themselves, so supremely confident they're never going to stumble, so completely convinced that they can handle anything. But then it happens. Oh, the specifics of what happens are different from this person to that one and to another one. I mean, for one, it may be the desire for a big bank account and all the stuff money can get. For somebody else, maybe it's the pull of power. I want to be be the one in charge. I want to be in control. I'm going to be the man. I'm going to be the woman. 
And for some, it's just good old-fashioned lust. But something worms its way into that strong heart. And before they know what's happened, they've fallen flat on their face, to use Peter's language. We've seen that happen. We're determined we're not going to give in. We're not going to go there. It's not going to happen to me. We really believe that. It's not going to happen to me. And then, before we know what hits us, we're flat on our face or flat on our backs looking up, wondering what in the world got a hold of us. You may or may not have experienced the Peter principle, but there's very few of us that haven't experienced the Peter syndrome that we're reading about here. And when it does, when we experience that, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And the evil one, he loves when that happens. He really, really loves it. He takes great delight in it for, for a lot of different reasons, but perhaps none more so than because when that happens... It's one of his most wonderful opportunities to convince us that we really can't trust in God's grace the way God tells us we can. Of course, he's really good at convincing us of things. When we screw up royally like old Peter here, he says, you can just kiss God's love goodbye. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for your sins and, and, and all, and, and that, that, yeah, that takes care of everything. But look, you've already cashed in on that when you became a follower of Jesus. You already played that card. Now, now that you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to know better. You need to be doing right. You know what to do. Where do you get off thinking that you can just keep going around that over and over and over again? He very cleverly and very subtly convinces us that our relationship with God, our salvation is some kind of a cosmic accounting procedure or something like that. And when God looks at us, well, the books don't look very good. Watch this little clip that talks about how God can look at us, we think. Okay, dude. No, you know what? I actually, uh, I, I, I have a client here, so I need to get going. Okay, thanks, bye. Bye. Good evening. Uh, welcome. I don't know if we've met yet. My name is God. I'm kind of the big wig around here. So uh, I'm sure you know why we're, you're here. We're here to talk about your account. Um, I was just reviewing this just the other day, actually, and I came across this, that you've actually <laughs> overdrawn your monthly sin amount. And we're only in the second day of the month here. So that's actually a, a new record uh, for us. Uh, you didn't know? Okay. Well, if you actually would like to refer back to your original contract that you signed with us, uh, you'll notice that we've been quite clear with you and patient. I didn't think you needed to either. And I, you know, not to make it all sound bad, like there are some heavenly assets here that you tried to deposit, you know, uh, going to church, um, uh, Bible study, 
prayer before bed. Like these are all nice, but compared to what you owe us, it just it doesn't add up. So what I've brought you here to tell you is that we've actually closed your account with us. And uh, I'm actually signing you up for the eternal payment plan. Uh, yeah. It, uh, it doesn't look like you'll be able to pay it off in this lifetime. So what you're going to do is you're going to take this piece of paper that I'm giving you. Uh, you're going to go down the hall. Make a left at the water cooler. Go down the stairs. Talk to Phil. He'll keep sending you downstairs. Just keep going down. Yeah, and enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, when can you sign back up with us? Never. This is it. You can go now. You can go. Okay, that may be a little over dramatic, but that's not all that far off of how subconsciously we kind of tend to think of how God sees us when it comes to our steadfastness or lack thereof and how that affects our relationship with him. <clears throat> At the risk of oversimplifying things just a little bit, a lot of people think of their relationship with God kind of like the thing we would do with the daisy when we were kids. You remember, you get the flower and you'd reach down there and you'd pull a petal off. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. And you just hoped when you got to the end of it, you wound up with she loves me. And we kind of think that's, that's how God looks. He loves me. When we're doing good, when we feel strong, when we're, when we're devoted to him, oh, God loves me. And then we kind of go downhill and, oh, he loves me not. And then he loves me. And he... Listen, folks, we need to get this. God's grace is not a daisy chain. There's not all this up and down. You don't have to die with a prayer on your lips to trust in God and your relationship with Him for eternity. You don't have to end on the uptick. The accuser is really good at reminding us we're not what we ought to be. It's okay. I know what everybody thinks. Yeah, you, you really have got a good impression, good reputation. Your image is wonderful. Everybody thinks you're good, but, but you know what? You know what you're like. And more important, God knows what you're like. You think he's impressed with you, bud? He convinces us that, well... Probably the most sinister. I mean, we're not going to fall for, I've got to earn my way to salvation. So he does another twist on it. You know what he does? It's okay, yeah, you're saved by God's grace. But through faith, and your faith isn't really strong enough. Your faith isn't complete enough. It's not whole enough. And so 
sorry. And we buy into that. Maybe you don't, but I struggle with that. He says, okay, Keith, you get up there, and you're supposed to be the man. You're talking about the Word of God, and you're calling people, you're challenging people, you're, you know, to be what God calls us to be, and you're saying all of this stuff, but Keith, come on. You know your faith isn't really that strong. And if all those people listening to you really knew about your struggles and about your doubts, sheesh, forget it. And God knows, God knows things that even you don't know, Keith. Do you really think you're okay with God? You see, the problem here, folks, is we, we're not even aware of it, but we get to thinking that if I'm going to be okay with God, I've got to have this in strong faith that's never going to waver, never going to falter, never going to be weak, never going to have those moments. I'm going to have to be able to withstand any challenge, to, to stand up to any attack, to overcome any struggle. And Jesus says, no, it's not the way it works. There's a really interesting note in Luke's version of what happened this night. After the supper and before Peter makes his arrogant proclamation, look, Luke 22, verse 31, listen to what Jesus says to, to Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to test all of you as a farmer sifts his wheat. I have prayed that you will not lose your faith. Help your brothers be stronger when you come back to me. You see, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows for all of Peter's braggadocio, he knows Peter's going to crash and burn worse than any of them. Why wouldn't he? All you have to do to listen is listen to what Peter says to know what his problem is. I'm never going to do it. I'll never deny you. I'll even die with you. I mean, he is so focused on him and his faith and his courage and how great he's going to be as a follower of Jesus. We might not say it in such outlandish terms, but we get focused on that too. When Satan gets us going down that road, he has a field day. Look again at what Jesus says in the last sentence of Matthew 26, 32. Help your brothers be stronger when you come back to me. Did you catch that? When you come back to me. Not if, when. How could Jesus be so certain? Because Jesus understood that it wasn't Peter's grip on God's grace that was going to get him through. It was God's grip on Peter that wasn't going to let go. When I was six years old, back in the dark ages, okay, when I was six years old, our family went on a family vacation up in the northern New Mexico in the mountains, just outside of Red River. We had a little cabin that we were, we were in. It was right next to a stream. And on the other side of that stream was this huge mountain. At least to a six-year-old from Texas, it was a huge mountain. And nothing would do but for me and my dad and my two older brothers to 
ford that stream and hike up that mountain. My, my oldest brother was 12 and the other was 10, so they were a lot better climbers than I was. But my dad was very patient with me, and he would wait as I climbed, and occasionally he would pick me up and when I, it was a little too much for me. We got about halfway up that mountain, and there was this, this huge expanse, about the size of a football field, not that shape, but that, about that size, of, of uh, loose rock. It wasn't gravel, and it wasn't boulders. It was rocks about the size of this Bible, but just, just a, a huge expanse of them. And we, we started up that. He had my hand. And we got about a third of the way up that expanse of, of loose rock, and started slipping, started to slide. And we, when we did, my dad reached down and grabbed me and held me against his chest and, and slid down on his backside, down that mountain, until he got past the loose rock to where he could get some footing and brace himself to stop us. I'll never forget that. He didn't say to me, okay, son, you better hold on tight because if you let go, you, you're probably going to get hurt. If, if you can't hold on enough, it's not going to be fun. No. It wasn't me holding on to him. We started to slide, and I felt those big, strong arms reach around my chest and pick me up and hold me next to him. And there was nothing on this earth that was going to pry me out of his grasp. It wasn't my grip on him. It was his grip on me. And we have a Father in heaven that says, you don't have to worry about how strong you are to hold on to me because I'm going to never let you go. Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you must change and become like little children. Otherwise, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever had a, a little child in your arms, maybe 6 or 12 or 18 months old? And they're there, and, and, and suddenly they decide something. You don't know what, and they just kind of lunge. Maybe they lunge forward or backward or sideways, but they just lunge. And you go, oh, and you make sure they're not going to fall. Why does a little child do that? Why ain't he clinging with his arms around your neck every minute you're holding him? Because that little child has all the faith in the world in you. He has complete trust that you're not going to let him go. You're not going to let him fall. And Jesus is saying, that's what you need to have. That's where your faith needs to be. Not in our grip on God, but in his grip on us. And when we have that kind of faith, we're going to have the kind of peace that will let us sleep like a baby. We're going to have an experience in the kingdom of God that is so powerful and so glorious that we're going we're gonna to wonder how we could ever have lived any other way. Praise be to God for his incomparable gift of grace. Let's pray.